Good morning to everybody. I want to welcome you here. And uh, hope you're having a great time at GYC. This is your first time to our seminar. I want to welcome you here. Our seminar is one of them that, that has been uh, recorded and going on to Audioverse. And so if you missed the first uh, f uh, four presentations of this seminar, titled I Know Something You Don't Know on the Lure of Conspiracies, um, you can catch those previous presentations on Audioverse uh, later. And so, yeah, uh, appreciate some great conversations uh, before and after the, the presentations and some great feedback. And it seems that this uh, topic is one that people are thinking about and care about, and that is how we... Uh, relate to conspiracies as far as our Adventist mission and message. I'd like to begin a word with a word of prayer, if you'll join me in bowing your heads, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can sit alongside some great friends here and make new friends today here in this place. And Lord, uh, even right here in this room, we come in with different uh, perspectives and sometimes perhaps baggage and we want to surrender all of that to you and that we can press closer behind Jesus than ever before. And that's, that's our prayer. It's our, it's our desire. It's our aim. And that we can be true to the calling that you have over us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was walking uh, this morning, got a call from my wife. My family couldn't be here uh, during GYC. My wife Ruthie and my kids are up in Spokane with my parents and she was telling me about uh, as she was uh, reading in her devotions part of her devotions right now is reading in Desire of Ages and she read this morning about this uh, situation with Jesus and Caiaphas and Jesus faced a lot of of conspiracy and as he, he goes to trial uh, there's a real the, the plot is, is definitely laid. Permit me to read a paragraph, if you will, here, describing the scene when it says, one of them, this is the trial of Jesus, one of them who had been bribed to accuse Jesus declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Thus Christ's words were misstated. If they had been reported exactly as he spoke them, they would not have secured his condemnation, even by the Sanhedrin. Had Jesus been a mere man, as the Jews claimed, his declaration would only have indicted an unreasonable, boastful spirit, but could not have been construed into blasphemy. Even as misrepresented by the false witnesses, his words contained nothing which would be regarded by the Romans as a crime worthy of death. Patiently, Jesus listened to the conflicting testimonies no word did he utter in self-defense. So the conspiracies were swirling in Jesus' time and in his ministry. And uh, keep, keep on coming in. We got more seats in the front available. Welcome to each that are coming in. Um, but Jesus was not the one stirring up conspiracies about others. Jesus was on the receiving end of the conspiracies. Did you notice that? There were conspiracies about Jesus. One of the sessions that we spent time on yesterday was about conspiracies in the church. So perhaps if we follow Jesus most closely, there will be conspiracy theories about us. And perhaps when there's conspiracies about people in the church, it's because they're being faithful. Maybe, maybe the ones that are receiving the conspiracies are the ones that are being faithful, and that's why there's these false things stated about them. And so when we relate to conspiracies, we want to put ourselves on the side of the conspiracies um, that Jesus was on. I'm joined uh, at this panel with uh, some great uh, friends and uh, theologians and speakers and ministers uh, on my right here is Cody Francis, who is one of the presenters yesterday. He is the ministerial director of the Michigan Conference and uh, uh, shared some great presentations yesterday. If you missed those, I hope that you catch those online later. 
And uh, on my left here is Amy Ritzara. Some of you may know her. And she's been, this is not her first year at GYC. It's been a lot. Amy is uh, assistant prosecuting attorney in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And she's written some great articles in the Adventist Review and is a speaker in many different areas. Uh, she also has a great message on, I believe, the Michigan Conference uh, YouTube channel about when the Sunday laws went to fair. Is that the title of it? And it's about the history of Sunday laws in the 1890s and uh, when it went to the Chicago Fair, the World Fair. And uh, great history for you to, to listen to there. And the different arguments of A.T. Jones, both biblical and, and historical and philosophical. And so you can listen to um, some great information there. On the far side here is uh, Peter Chung joining us. And uh, he is the associate speaker for Revelation of Hope Ministries with Taj Pakleb. He teaches history at San Gabriel Adventist Academy. And you can hear some messages of his on um, <clears throat> audioverse about prophetic interpretation and making sure that politics is not compromising our interpretation of prophecy. And of course, uh, Mark Howard, you heard in the main session this morning, and he serves as the associate director of Sabbath Personal Ministries in the Michigan Conference. So we're glad to have each one here um, with us this morning as we dive into these questions that you texted in uh, yesterday. We received many, and we appreciate that. Uh, the first question I'd like to direct, first of all, to Pastor Howard, and that is, what is it that is so appealing about conspiracies? There does seem to be a buzz. Sometimes it feels like Adventists are especially prone, but we do definitely see it in the Christian culture in America. And, and there's, there's uh, maybe a, a rise of, of, of speculation, sense of corruption in the last few years in, in the United States, and it, it's a big thing. The appeal of conspiracies, why are they so appealing? Well, I don't know if this is uh, exactly on point, but the thing, the thought, the, the verse actually that comes to my mind is in the book of Galatians, and it's in chapter 4, verse 17, and if you're familiar with the story in Galatians, you have some false teachers who have come in behind the apostle Paul, and they're trying to win his converts to themselves, and Paul's speaking about these false teachers in Galatians 4, 17, says, they zealously court you but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. And a lot of, in fact, let me pull up uh, what the NIV says here. It says, these people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. Now, there's a little spin there. In the, in the New King James, it says they want to exclude you. And the mindset of some scholars is, well, why would anybody want to join a group that wants to exclude them? But there seems to be something about conspiracy groups. There's a, there's a kind of a clubhouse mentality. Does anybody know what I mean, clubhouse mentality? Like, I'm in the club and you're not in the club. I know and you don't know. And part of me wonders what would happen to the conspiracy theories if everybody just said, yeah, we agree. In my experience as a pastor, I think a lot of the people would move on to another conspiracy because it's just not as exciting knowing something everybody knows. And so this may not be everything, but I really think what Paul's addressing here is these false teachers want to exclude you, he says, that you may be zealous for them. In other words, they have a kind of thing they're in the know about, and you don't know, and you, it makes you look up to them as, wow, they're just so enlightened. And they'll let you in on a little piece here and a little piece there, but they have some connection, some tie-in. Um, for example, I remember years ago in pastoral ministry, some guy released a book on different government conspiracies, and he was exposing them all. And my brother asked the question, if these are conspiracy secrets and they're top secret, how did the guy who wrote the book find out? In other words, the guys who write the conspiracy, where'd they find out the conspiracy? How are they in the know and nobody else is in the know? If it's so secret, how did this person figure it out? There's some element in the human heart that likes to be in the know and be exclusive and be 
uh, above other people. And I think at least in part, that's a lure to people with conspiracy theories because it puts you on the inside of something. Thank you, very insightful. I saw some nodding heads as you were describing some things there. And, uh, but uh, what, what about Adventists? We, we have perhaps a little bit of a soft spot on conspiracies. Is there any explanation on, on why it, it's so prevalent sometimes in some of our Adventist cultures? Anybody want to speak to that? As we, as we look at conspiracies, a, an underlying layer of them is a distrust in authority or a distrust in the government in particular. That seems to be a real common denominator. And uh, as Adventists, we know some things. We've talked about it in some of the previous messages, but there's some things that we know that the world as a whole believes that is wrong. So, for example, we believe in a recent creation, because the Bible teaches that. And so we're in opposition right there to 90 plus percent of the scientific community. And that's okay because the Bible says it, right? And so I think that there's, there's beliefs that we have that are in the Bible that are very countercultural and counter majority opinion. And because of that, it gives us some, we give additional credence, perhaps, to other ideas that are not in the Bible in the spirit of prophecy that fit our paradigm or fit our thoughts, but there might be weaker evidence for that, and it can open it us up to that. So I think, for me, a major thing is, if it's in the Bible in the spirit of prophecy, I'm going to stand for that. Uh, it doesn't matter who believes it, right? That's what we have to stand for. But if it's not, I'm not going to get entangled in it because it's probably going to be a distraction from where I really need to be. All right. Very good. So I've been uh, looking forward to this question, to this answer from Amy. And uh, not to put any pressure, but, you know, Amy, if you answer this question good enough, this could just be the last question of the panel. This is so important. How can we tell if a conspiracy theory is valid or not? You ready? <laughs> so I think I'm going to change the question a little bit, but not really. I think what the question is really getting at is how can we evaluate information? How do we determine whether the information we're looking at is accurate or it's not. And I think the very first thing that we address with that is something that Pastor Cody just said, is what is the standard with which we're evaluating that information? You know, so I'm a lawyer by practice, and we tell juries to use their common sense and everyday experience. And we're actually going to come back to that because I'm not disregarding that at all. Um, but as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a higher source of authority for us to compare all information to. We have an Adventist worldview. We have an Adventist understanding of end-time prophecy. We have the Bible. We have the spirit of prophecy. And ultimately, that's the first ground of filter that we take any information through, right? So there's a, a passage I came across in Eighth Testimonies looking at this, where Ellen White's warning against sensational religion. And it's very short, three paragraphs. So I'm just going to read this really quickly. At this time, we need in the cause of God spiritually-minded men, men who are firm in principle and who have a clear understanding of the truth. So the first thing, before we can even answer these questions about conspiracy theories, do you have a clear understanding of the truth? I've been instructed that it is not new and fanciful doctrines which the people need, not these wonderful, thrilling conspiracy theories. They do not need human suppositions. They need the testimony of men who know and practice the truth men who understand and obey the charge given to Timothy. Now she's quoting from 2 Timothy. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. She's talking about maybe some of these conspiracy theories, or the Bible is. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 5. Then she continues... Walk firmly, decidedly, your feet shod with preparation of the gospel of peace. You may be sure that pure and undefiled religion is not a sensational religion. 
God has not laid upon anyone the burden of encouraging an appetite for speculative doctrines and theories. My brethren, keep these things out of your teaching. Do not allow them to enter into your experience. Let not your life work be marred by them. So she's giving us a lot of principles here, right? Going back to what is our understanding of the truth? Are we preaching this truth? Is it bringing us into a better understanding of the Bible and God? Or is it actually taking us away from that? These are some of those beginning principles that you can look at. There's some, two other um, scriptures just to keep in mind. I was talking this over with my husband this morning, and he was like, I mean, it's really basic, but these are filters that are available for us when we're evaluating any information. I'm like, that's 100% true. So the first one that um, we talked about was Proverbs 3, 5, and he said through 6, but I like adding in verse 7 as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So as we're evaluating our information, we can ask for God's guidance. We put our trust in him. We don't lean on our own understanding, but we come back, we compare it with the word of God, we compare it with our prophetic understandings, and we start to evaluate the information that way. The other one is this. You know, kind of when Joe first asked me this question, I was like... I mean, I kind of know it in my gut if it's a conspiracy theory. That sounds like, you know, I don't... But that's not... That's horrible. That's horrible advice. That's not what I'm telling you to do here. Don't, don't trust your gut. But this is why... Uh, anyway, let me just let the Bible speak for itself. Uh, Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we continue to bathe our minds in the word of God, as we continue to bathe our minds in the spirit of prophecy and those things which we know are true, as we're evaluating other information, that's where we can start to develop that gut instinct that maybe right off the bat you can start to evaluate. But it's not just that gut instinct. It's because of that base, that foundation from scripture, that foundation from building that Adventist worldview that helps you start to evaluate that information. But now, what are some even more nitty-gritty, detailed ways that you can do? Because we live in a day of information, right? You get on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, maybe there's people here who are on TikTok, whatever, the social information comes at us from all different kinds of places. And there's videos, and there's websites, and how do I know what's true, and how do I know what's not, by, just by looking at it? You can start to ask questions of the information that you're looking at. The first one is, who said it? Who wrote it? Who made the video? Is this like an anonymous person who doesn't want to be revealed? Then why are you going to rely on that and start to tell people that we need to believe this if the person's not even willing to say that they believe it? You know, that automatically should start to raise some red flags. Like, wait a second, I don't know about this. But if you know who it is, what else have they said? What have other people who I trust say about what this person says about things? You can start to evaluate that way. Who said it? Who wrote it? Is it supported by evidence? Are they making a statement about something that they claim is from the Bible? Well, what does the Bible say about that then? Can they back it up from scripture? Can they back it up from the spirit of prophecy? Or is it something that's more like a conspiracy theory about the government or about the healthcare industry or whatever? Okay, that's fine. Let's listen to what you have to say. What's your data? What's your information? What's your source? And you start to see, are, are there sources that are being relied on here or not? And evaluating and going back and looking at those sources. Is this information current? And I think for a lot of people, you can even see that now. You'll go onto this website, and it's claiming all these things. And the images are from, like, 1995. You know, like, wait a second. What's going on here? This doesn't seem like it's maybe the most up-to-date or the most current information that we have. Maybe this isn't the most reliable source if we're relying on things that are kind of a little bit old here and it's not to make some sort of historic point. Um, and just the grammar of information that you receive. I mean, if you're seeing typos, if you're seeing misspellings, if it doesn't make sense, I mean, are you really going to use that as a source of authority to then tell people, like, man, can you believe it? Like, Jesus is coming in two weeks. Like, no. Like, just by the fact that the quality of the content is not good can give you some information on whether or not you can put credence in this, in this theory that's going on. Um, 
and again, particularly when we're talking about maybe things in the church, but outside of the church as well, well, what are other people? If one pastor is saying something on this YouTube video, and it's kind of amazing, are there other pastors preaching the same thing? God doesn't reveal light in a vacuum, you know? So if, if it's being revealed to one pastor, it should probably be something that's being revealed on a broad spectrum across the church, but there's only one person saying it, that might start to give some concern that this isn't something that's very reliable, not something that we can believe in. And finally, um, and this is something important, especially when you're looking at things in the news, but also from any other source of information, is it slanted or is it biased? And in what way is that? And sometimes that can be really hard for us, right? Like if we've let ourselves be in a vacuum of only listening to things from one side, it can be hard to realize that something on that side is biased. So sometimes the easiest way to train ourselves is go to someone who you know believes the opposite of what you do just to help learn how to identify what bias looks like. That doesn't mean you're believing what they're saying, but to help train your mind to, to identify, is this biased or is this slanted? These are all just general principles, and they're similar to the things we tell juries, right? You listen to this witness, could they see what was happening? Could they hear what was happening? Do they have a special reason to tell the truth? Do they have a special reason to lie? Those are the same questions that we should ask of all information as it's coming in. It doesn't mean that we can't listen to information from a variety of angles, but it doesn't mean that we have to believe everything that we're told. You know, as Adventists, we believe in true education. We, don't want it, we want to be thinkers and not just mere reflectors of other men's opinions. And so often when it comes to these conspiracy theories, we hear something that sounds cool or interesting and we're ready to spout it out without testing it. And that's what it comes down to, is it's our responsibility as thinking Seventh-day Adventists to take information, to put it through our Adventist worldview, worldview, compare it with scripture, compare it with the spirit of prophecy, and think about it before actually giving any weight to it, and certainly before sharing it with other people. Thank you, Amy. Very, very helpful answers. I like how you started with the, with the Bible as, as the foundation. You know, the Bible is a book that reasons from cause to effect. Mm -hmm. Just read 31 chapters in Proverbs. It's, it's teaching cause and effect in our life. And to actually have some common sense to be able to evaluate what's going on. God's people are not against common sense. Amen. And so the Bible, I remember when I first was a Bible worker, very young, and I, I was at a restaurant with a, an agnostic. He, he didn't believe in Christianity at all. He was quite uh, opposed to the Bible prayer. And I told him, I believe the Bible is the most logical book in the world. And he was a philosopher. And that, that opened up for, for Bible studies, and he was eventually baptized. But that, that Bible study and that baptism started with a statement in the restaurant saying, the Bible is the most logical book in the world. And so we start with here, and we, we use these common sense principles that, that you have uh, very well articulated. Thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> all right, uh, our next question, I'd like to turn to... Uh, Peter, I'd like to spend a couple questions, and, and you can jump in, Mark, as well, on these questions of interpretation of prophecy. Because if, if the Bible is our foundation, and if we really are looking at the end-time scenarios and how things are going to come together, Jesus laid out the foundation in Matthew 24, and Revelation 13 really gives, gives those details. So how we interpret this prophecy really does help us sort out a lot of things that we're hearing. Because as, as Cody shared in his presentation yesterday, there's a lot of evangelical interpretation of prophecy that has seeped into Adventism and things that we have repeated. And then we realize, actually, that wasn't ever in the book Great Controversy. It was in this dispensational teaching that emphasizes some of the global one world government takeovers and such of these things. So there's a number of things uh, uh, well, the, 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 the chapter from Revelation 13 really shines a light on some important principles. So, uh, Peter, in Revelation 13, um, what events lead up to the final tyranny? And this is, this is being delineated in different ways in different places, even within our church. But what, what can you show from Scripture? How, how is it going to lead up to the final tyranny? Well, in Revelation 13, verses 11 through 15, the whole issue is worship. It has a religious connotation. Worship is not secular. And um, so we have this interpretation from the evangelical circles that secular humanism, LGBT agenda, um, secular government is going to oppress Christians. While we as Adventists have taught 
in our prophetic interpretation that it's going to be a religious-led persecution. And we find this in Great Conversation, page 445. Inspiration says, when the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine, are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and sustain their institutions, then Protestant America, it doesn't say papal America, Catholic America, secular America, Protestant America will have formed the image of the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. So we're talking about the image of the beast. The image is what Protestant America sets up. The image to the beast, which is the papacy, is a church-state system, which is led by Protestant America. Many of our Adventist end-time preachers today focus on the papacy. We don't focus on Protestant America, which I find it very, very interesting. Because I started preaching this message in 2002. I'm dating myself. I'm old. And from that point, it was our understanding that it would come from Protestant America, and all of a sudden, since 2016, all of a sudden, it's secular humanism. It's LGBT. It's about this and that and whatever, when it's really Protestant America. And one more quote is from Science of the Times, July 4, 1899. Inspiration says this, Our land is in jeopardy. The time is drawing on when legislation shall be adjured and principles of Protestantism as to give contents to Romans uh, apostasy. When Protestant churches, I repeat, Protestant churches shall seek the support of the secular power, notice it's the church asking the government, thus following the examples of that apostate church from posing which their ancestors endured the fiercest persecution, then will there be national apostasy which will lead only in national ruin. We have to reevaluate ourselves and refocus. We have to look at Protestant America. What are they doing? Are they trying to influence the government? Are they trying to impose their agenda and to impose a Christian nation with Christian values upon forced legislation? Is that aligned with the Great Controversy? I believe so. Okay, but, but the problem is that you've mentioned a couple of times here that the LGBT situation is, is an example of, of the secular agenda that has, has kind of uh, pinched Christian churches in a, in a sense which we have, we have experienced to some degree. It's been backed up and it's gone forward in some cases. I pastored a church recently where when I came there, I found out when I arrived that the church board had voted not to allow any non-members to have a wedding there. And I, I never heard of a church that ever had a policy like that. I said, what in the world? And then I found out this church was planted in, in 2014. And I thought, 2014, that's when they voted this. And then I all of a sudden remembered what was happening in the world because at the end of, of the Obama era, when, when these things were being overturned in the Supreme Court, we were very concerned about churches and, and, and universities being required to, to um, perform uh, uh, same-sex marriages. There were some of these scenarios, not in churches, but in secular uh, uh, or, or um, non-religious uh, wedding locations. And then that was creeping close to uh, campuses, wh whether we are going to be required to, to uh, you know, hire and, and disregard our religious conviction on this. And so there, we feel a real threat from this side. So can we just completely dismiss this because we're reading from Protestant America? Does anybody have a response? What do you think? Well, we advocate um, our religious liberty position is based upon that of Roger Williams, which Ellen White endorsed in Great Controversy. This is my iPad, by the way, today. I'm sorry. Uh, Great Controversy, page 293, paragraph 1. Ellen White says that, um, endorsed Roger Williams, that this freedom was that enable right of all, whatever they might, their creed might be. So, yes, we need to stand up for religious liberty for Christians that are being persecuted in this agenda. And we need to stand up for Muslims as they are being persecuted for wearing the prayer shawl. And we are all in compliance. We're, we're for the religious liberty for everybody. That's our position. That's a unique Adventist position. The evangelical position is religious liberty just for Christians. Ellen White says in Great Commerce 293, paragraph 1, to this day that 
our endorsement is that of Roger Williams. Roger Williams in the Bloody Tenant Persecution, which I got the quote from Patrick Cody Francis, and I finally read the book. Check out his presentation. Uh, he didn't pay me to say that, by the way. That, you know, Roger Williams in his writings said that pagans, Muslims, he called them Turkish, Christians, Jews are all welcome in this Rhode Island colony. This is our position as Adventists that we should have religious liberty of all. And one thing else about Roger Williams is this. He gave safe haven for Seventh-day Baptists. And the second governor of Rhode Island was a Sabbath keeper. And so that is the religious liberty position that we must have, a religious liberty for everybody. And I think jumping off of that, we see a lot of things in society that we don't agree with morally or whatever as Seventh-day Adventists, right? Like, that would be a threat to the things that we believe. But that doesn't mean that they are what the end time scenario in Revelation 13 is, if that makes sense. So there may have been a concern with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Would we be required to have a wedding that goes against with what we teach about family in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? And that's why a church makes that decision. That's something for the church to deal with, and that's a reality we have to live in in this sinful world. And we have religious liberty stances that we take that do advocate for people of all faiths, including our own. Um, and I don't think that we're limited in making those, um, in being advocates about that to the government, about remembering those protections. However, the Bible is specific about what the end time scenario is, and it's about forced worship. And so I think that's where it's important for us to draw the distinction. The Bible didn't necessarily cover every detail of what's going to be happening at the end of time. What's important is for us, it, it gave us what's important for us to know to be prepared for the end of time. You know, I think when we look at some of the conflicts in society today, there are real conflicts and there's real issues that we have to deal with. Uh, there are conflicts and uh, uh, personal convictions regarding some of these secularistic LGBT issues. That's real. Those, these are real things. And it can be a real issue with churches as well. And I think what we're saying is that it's these are real things, and we have to figure out how we're going to stand for the Bible and the spirit of prophecy in these issues in the world that we live in. But that's not actually the picture that Revelation 13 is portraying. Great Controversy, page 587, says... Yet the very class put forth the claim that the fast-spreading corruption... Now, we do have fast-spreading corruption, don't we? Through LGBTQ agendas and other things, we have that. Through the, the claim that the fast-spreading corruption is largely attributable to the desecration of the so-called Christian Sabbath and that the enforcement of Sunday observance would greatly improve the morals of society. And so we're told that one of the reasons for the push for Sunday laws will be to improve the morals of society. Through secularism, through the LGBTQ agenda, through these various issues, the morals of society has been attacked. And so we could see how there could be a backlash that would then want to be pushing for these, quote, moral reforms that would go into uh, enforced worship as well. But the issue in Revelation 13 is worship, and that's what we have to be clear on. So I just, in a, maybe a different line of thought, thinking to myself about the, you know, this prophetic picture, uh, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 17. What's 16, 1890s? 1890s, a little while ago. The mark of the beast is exactly what it has pro been proclaimed to be, she says. Not all in regard to this matter is yet understood nor will be understood until the unrolling of the scroll. In other words, how it will play out. We know, we've known since the 1890s and before what it's going to be. So that my, in my mind, I'm thinking here, you know, what's the lore again of, of different interpretations? And I just think we get bored with truth. The reality is we want that you, you look at it in the evangelical world. Why is futurism so, so appealing? Because historicism means prophecies have taken place in the past and we need something now. We need something present. And I thought of a statement in the book Great Controversy where Ellen White says, uh, page 463, it's in the Modern Revivals chapter. She says, popular, popular revivals are too often carried by appeals to the imagination by exciting the emotions, 
by gratifying the love for what is new and startling. Uh, let, me just, let me just interject this here. Everything that I'm talking about is saying that uh, conspiracies appeal to the unconverted heart. And, and you'll notice she's talking about revivals in order for conversion. She continues, converts thus gained have little desire to listen to Bible truths, little interest in the testimony of prophets and apostles. Unless a religious service has something of a sensational character, it has no attractions for them. This is not conversion. These conversions she's talking about, these are false converts under a false revival, and you identify them, according to her, by the fact that they just want something new and sensational all the time. Pastor Cody had mentioned this yesterday in the book of Acts. It said of the Greeks on Mars Hill, uh, the philosophers, they love to hear or tell some new thing, and I think that that is the carnal heart. And I think of the woman at the well. When Jesus talked to the woman at the well, you remember what happened? When the issue started coming down to her personal need for conversion, she switched to a topic of sensationalism, mm -hmm. right? Wants to talk about Jews and Samaritans and who's going to take the, who, where we should worship and this kind of thing, a controversial issue. And I think that we're drawn to those sensational things, at least in part, because we get bored with truth and we don't want to face the need for personal revival. Amazing. I would love to talk more about this uh, interpretation from Revelation 13. We do have some other topics of very important that I want to answer before we end here. And Mark, you just set the stage for a question I'd, I'd like to ask you because you, you just described the, the conspiracy's uh, interest in, in this sensational being a, an attribute of the unconverted heart. And there was a, a couple questions that came in yesterday with concern about how to, how to relate to my friends um, that are into this. And one, one uh, question that really touched my heart was a question about somebody that is that I'm giving Bible studies to, or that is new to the faith, that is into this conspiracy, and and how do I share this kind of information, or how do I help them? They're just coming into the church. They're they're, they're new. How how do I relate to them and help them? Again, this is just the thought that came to my mind. Uh, I had heard this question yesterday, and I thought of an experience in our Adventist history. Um, originally, the pioneers of the Advent movement believed that the end of the 2300 days would be in the spring of 1843. And when that time didn't come, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the spring of 1844, it was the fall of 1843 and then the spring of 1844, and in the spring of 1844, the time came and went, and then what do you do? Uh, they go back to the prophecies, I, I can't see where we went wrong, and so they continue preaching and saying, well, there's a tarrying time, the Lord's going to come. And it was at the Exeter camp meeting where Joseph Bates was on the platform preaching. And, 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 you know, every night. And you had this big group gathered there. And something interesting began to happen. There was a group from Watertown, uh, Massachusetts. I'm not sure of Watertown where it was from. Um, but they, they, re, they put their tent on the ground and they began to have these sensational... Uh, services. In fact, I'll share with you just a little bit of, of a description of one of the brethren there, Elder Plummer, who had charge of the meeting. This is in James White's autobiography, Life Incidents. He said, Elder Plummer, who had charge of the meeting, stated that he had no objections to shouts of praise to God over victories won in his name, but when persons had shouted glory to God 999 times with no evidence of one victory gained and had blistered their hands in striking them together with violence, he thought it was time for them to stop. So you have this very sensational service that's going on in this big Watertown group, a lot of very kind of Pentecostal-ish, if you will, service, a lot of excitement, and what was happening is people were going, more and more people. This Watertown tent was growing, and people were getting disinterested in uh, people like Brother Bates getting up to preach the message. And Joseph Bates was preaching when a man named Samuel Snow rode up on his horse, and his sister was in that meeting, and, and apparently Brother Snow came in, and this is when he had first looked at the calendar and realized that the 2300-day prophecy ends on October 22, 1844. That was a date, incidentally, that Snow came up with, not William Miller. And I won't go into the history of that. So when he came in and he talked to his sister, she spoke up in the meeting, and this is what she said, again in White's book. She said, Brother Bates, 
It is too late in the day. It's too late, brethren, to spend precious time as we have since this camp meeting commenced. Time is short. The Lord has servants here who have meat in due season for his household. Let them speak and let the people hear them. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And Snow got up and he gave his testimony. And James White says the testimony seemed electrifying and was responded to by choked utterances of amen from every part of the vast encampment. Now listen. Many were in tears. What former speakers had said was forgotten, and the spirit of fanaticism, which an hour before lay upon the burdened feelings of the brethren and sisters like a ponderous leaden weight, was also forgotten. The attention paid to those in fanaticism and the opposition they were able to call out were just the coveted fuel needed to feed the unhallowed flame. In other words, now, so when the cessationalism is there, it's there because of the absence of the truth being preached. And if you have a person that's interested and you're like, well, how do I combat this? Well, let me tell them more conspiracy theories and explain them. No, give them the truth. The truth has power. This is what we see in this example. James White goes on that these sensational elements were destined to triumph unless the attention of the people could be fastened in another direction. This done, he says, and their power was broken. And Ellen White later on comments on this meeting, and she says, like, this is a Great Controversy 400, like a tidal wave, the movement swept over the land from city to city, from village to village, and into the remote country places it went until the waiting people of God were fully aroused. Fanaticism disappeared before this proclamation like early frost before the rising sun. Believers saw their doubt and perplexity removed and hope and courage animated their hearts. The work was free from those extremes which are ever manifested where there is human excitement without the controlling influence of the, of the word and the spirit of God. So when the truth was preached, she says that fanaticism disappeared like frost before the rising sun. The truth always has power to transform. And it's interesting that James White said it was in the absence of the truth, all that, that uh, sensationalism needed was the, the opposition of the people. And let me read that again. The attention paid to those in fanaticism, let me call it conspiracy theories, the attention paid to those in conspiracy theories and the opposition they were able to call out were just the coveted fuel to feed the unhallowed flame. You know, I was thinking about this question as well, and this morning it made me remember the disciples, because if you really think about it, Jesus had a lot of conspiracy theorists who were following him. You know, they thought that the Messiah was going to come and deliver Israel and establish an earthly kingdom, and Jesus didn't kick them out of his ranks. Um, he kept them close to him for three years. He kept teaching them the truth, and he kept encouraging them towards acts of service killed he rises again and he's about to go to heaven and when you go to acts chapter one again the disciples are asking them in verse um six so when they had come together they asked him lord will you at this time restore the kingdom of israel so even after all of this they're still a little bit embedded with that conspiracy theory but the same thing that pastor mark was just saying is what jesus tells them he said to them one, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. There are some things that we just can't know. We can come up with all the conspiracy theories we want. But God says that's for him to worry about, not us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the things that I draw from Jesus' own example, and this is hard for me, like this is something I really need to learn. It's like we have to be patient with people. You know, we have to be loving. We have to continue to share the truth as it is in the scripture. And we need to encourage other people for service. And we need to remember what our role is here. It's not getting bogged down in the what ifs and the maybes and the speculations. It's preaching the truth that Jesus gave us to share and trusting those things that are up to God into God's hands. That can be hard. As humans, we're fearful and we're uncertain, but we can have that confidence in God. And we can also learn through Jesus how to have that patience and love for those who are dealing with those different conspiracy theories. And let's not miss that he said it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, which most of the examples that Cody and I shared yesterday 
happened to circle around time setting. Mm -hmm. And as, whether it's hard time setting or soft time setting or different things and attaching times and seasons to this and that, Jesus said, leave it alone. Yep. And so very important. Yeah, I think this is a great question of how do we help somebody that we feel is uh, um, getting distracted from our message and mission with these various things. And uh, so that's really, that's something that is deeper than just knowing that these things maybe are distracting us. This is how do we apply it? How do we, how, do, how does this, how do we uh, really do something with this? You know, I listened to a, a TED Talk from uh, Peter McIndoe, and uh, he was the one who developed the um, satire conspiracy that birds are not real. And uh, so he, for several years, he came up with, and he was promoting this idea that birds were all killed by the government, and now anything you see is something that is spying on you. And uh, so his, his logo was, if it flies, it spies. And uh, so he developed this satire, and he did not believe it. This was something that he was promoting to see how people would respond and kind of a societal experiment. And he has, you can see, he shows pictures of his van with all written up all around it that birds are not real, and he would go to these different places. He said, and he said, I was in this character, and people would come up to me, and they would argue with me. They would say I was stupid for not acknowledging the facts, and he said, I don't believe this, and yet my emotional response was the response of somebody that did believe it. He said, I was felt emboldened in my belief. I felt sad and angry when I was confronted. And his point was, maybe we need to take a different approach. Now, he's not a Christian. I mean, actually, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but it doesn't come across as a Christian or an Adventist. Arguing is not going to be effective. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 23, uh, 2, 23 to 25, the servant of the Lord must not strive. If we're just arguing, it's not going to be effective. We need to recognize that we can't change people's hearts, number one. Only God can do that. God can do it. We can't. And we need to believe in people. One of the amazing things about Jesus' life and ministry is he believed in people. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, it says, speaking of the rich young ruler, Jesus looking upon him loved him. Jesus saw what he could become. Jesus loved him. He wanted to help him. He wanted to see him become a tremendous worker in the cause of God. He did it, but he believed in him. So we have to have the best attitude. If we approach somebody like, you are crazy for believing that the earth is flat, we're not going to be able to, to, to reach them. So we need to believe in them, we need to not argue, and then we need to lift up Jesus and his truth. Jesus says in John chapter 12, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. We lift up Jesus, we present his truth, and we allow God to work in hearts and lives. I think there's one other thing we can do, and that is pray for openings. Pray for those teachable moments or those divine appointments when we may be able to say something that might be able to make a crack in some of the distractions that people have uh, in these conspiracy theories. But number one, our attitude needs to be right. We need to recognize we believe in them, we want to help them, and we believe that God can and will. All right, our, our uh, last uh, topic that we received some questions about is how to relate to problems in the church, and I'd like to ask some of those. So first of all, what is the process of accountability with leadership that are acting contrary to the Bible? How does Matthew 18 practically work for church members and leadership? So it's a good question. 
How does accountability, uh, how does the process of accountability for those in leadership that are acting contrary to the Bible, how, do, how does that look like? And uh, how do you follow Matthew 18 in that context? Now, as we think about this, there's, there's lots, of, every situation is different. And so I, we can't really say, well, this is what you do, one, two, three, four, and that'll solve everything. Uh, because every issue can be different, every individual circumstance can be different, and so there's, there's a lot of variety here. But there are some principles I want to look at. First of all, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, it says, if your brother has sinned against you. So Matthew 18 is specifically dealing with those that have personal grievances or interpersonal interactions. And so we need to recognize that, but there is an overarching principle. And a lot of times, or sometimes, depending on the situation, if there's a uh, uh, accountability for leadership, it depends on whether uh, we have that personal interaction, how we deal with it. But I think the principle still applies that you keep difficulties to as small a circle as possible. And so we don't need to, for example, blasting someone on the internet is probably not the most effective way to help them or to others. It's probably not following the principle of Matthew 18, even if you have gone to them. Now, let's talk about some different scenarios here. Say the, the question is leadership, so accountability for those in leadership. So I want to look at a couple different scenarios. Say there's an elder in your church that you believe is acting contrary to the Bible. How would you deal with that? Well, I would recommend, first of all, that you visit with them, that you try to talk with them first. And as you talk with them, maybe there can be a reconciliation there. We're not talking about reconciliation, but maybe there can be a mutual understanding regarding uh, why they did this or the following of the principles of the Bible, whatever it might be. If that isn't effective, I would recommend talking to your pastor and seeing how that might be resolved. Now, I'm just going to go up in leadership, say you feel like your pastor is acting contrary to the Bible. And so how do you deal with it in a situation like that? Now, I think, I think it was, Joe, I think you said uh, yesterday that um, pastors make mistakes. And we have to recognize that. None of us are infallible. We all make mistakes. And so give whoever it is the benefit of the doubt. Believe the best in your pastor or whoever it is that you're trying to uh, bring about this understanding with and share your concerns with the Bible. Visit with your pastor. It's a personal relationship, so visit with him and share your concerns with him. Don't accuse him and share your concern factually as well. So don't impugn motives. Share the concern factually and don't accuse. Now, because there's so many uh, ways that you can take this, if it's an issue that is dealing that the church makes a decision on, and you're at the church board, you can bring the issue up at the church board. And so you're kind of looking at how can I deal with this at the lowest common denominator without uh, bringing as many people in as possible, but still speaking to truth and that. Now, if it's a major issue and... Uh, You've dealt with the issue locally as much as you can, and there's still no resolution. What you can do, and I don't recommend this, but I do get this does happen, uh, but what you can do is you can call and get some advice from uh, the conference office. Now, I'm in the ministerial department, and I get calls from uh, churches that have, are struggling with various issues, and we want to help in those areas. Now, one of the first things we're frequently going to ask if you call is, have you talked with your pastor about this? Because I don't want you coming to me if there hasn't been, you haven't tried to resolve it on this level. And so, depending on the issue, there may be advice. And like I said, every call I would get in that regard is different. Now, those are areas where you can deal with it. You have a personal level of influence. Perhaps there's a, you're concerned with what you consider to be an unbiblical stand about leaders in the conference or the union or the general conference. Now, 
probably, or you may, but most likely there's not a personal relationship that you have with a lot of these people. And so uh, there's, there are ways. Our church is a representative democracy. There are ways to approach it. So if there's concerns, in a conference level, I'd recommend talking with them. Um, there's a constituency meeting. There's a nominated committee. Concerns can be shared there. That's the process. You can even request, if it's outside of your area of responsibility, you can request, if the church feels it, they can submit a request for this issue to be dealt with. But once again, we want to keep it in as small a circle as possible. Now, there's another factor, and that is, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, that we need to submit to one another. There are times when we might have an understanding, and I'm not talking about a major moral issue, but there are times that we might have a difference of opinion that we need to recognize that maybe the church doesn't see it that way yet, or maybe I need to yield my understanding. Uh, Pastor Reeves talked about yesterday about how Joseph Bates, 20 years before the health reform message, was way in advance of everybody else, before the vision was even given. He lived it personally, but he did not, uh, was, not promo- was not making an issue of it. Now, I want to read just a statement or two here from the Spirit of Prophecy. And this is, this is from Testimonies to Ministers 29 and 30. God is leading a people out from the world upon the exalted platform of eternal truth. So notice she says he's, she's, he is leading a people. He's not just leading a person. He's leading a people. She says, though we have an individual work and an individual responsibility before God, we are not to follow our own independent judgment regardless of the opinions and feelings of our brethren. For this course would lead lead to disorder in the church. And one other statement. This is from Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 390. There is no need to doubt to be fearful that the work will not succeed. God is at the head of the work, and he will set everything in order. If matters need adjusting at the head of the work, God will attend to that and work to right every wrong. And so we need to do what we can on our level and share and do everything we can, but ultimately we still need to trust that God is leading a people and that he will set orders, set matters right at, in his work. You know, sometimes people have asked me about this Matthew 18, following Matthew 18. And even when I follow Matthew 18, they keep asking me, why don't you follow Matthew 18? I haven't followed Matthew 18 until I do what they want me to do. Sometimes we think that Matthew 18 is not followed unless I get my way. But sometimes we follow Matthew 18 and it results in a different conclusion than we want. And we have to accept and we have to be patient with the body, uh, even if it's behind us or not not what we wished for. Um, Peter, one of the concerns in the church is about the the ecumenism, and we received a question about that. And uh, from from prophecy, what where does ecumenism fit in, and how should Adventists relate to this? Well. In Matthew 24, 9, the Bible says that God's people we hated in Christ's name's sake. So ultimately, ultimately there's going to be a, a unity of the world against God's people. And we see the uniting of churches as, as the impetus of that. Um, I think one thing that people fail to realize about, you know, ecumenism right now is more in the progressive left type of way, I think, with Pope Francis and, you know, uniting churches is that... N- Popes come and go. We may have a liberal pope now, but we'll have a, we may have a conservative pope in the future. Ratzinger was a conservative pope that aligned with evangelicals, and then Francis was liberal, so popes come and go. That's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is this, is that how can all these groups unite? Well, we forget in Revelation 13, verses 13, that there's going to be a false revival, that there's going to be what the Bible says, that fire comes down from heaven and miracles will happen. And oftentimes we've neglected our prophetic teachings today, which we've taught in the past, is that there's going to be 
a real revival of primitive godliness, which GYC is praying and yearning and we, we want to be a part of. But there's going to be a counterfeit revival at the same time where miracles will happen. Well, that will unite many people with the impetus being Protestant in America that will be leading a, a forefront. Now, I want to read you a statement from Great Controversy, page 587. What's going to unite everybody against God's people? Great Controversy, page 587, where is it? Okay, here it is. While appearing uh, to the children of men as great physician who can heal all their maladies, he will bring disease and disasters until populous cities are reduced to ruin and desolation. Even now he is at work in accidents and calamities by sea and by land, in great conflagrations as are firestorms, in fierce tornadoes, terrific hailstorms, in tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves, and earthquakes in every place in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. He sweeps away the harvest and famine and distress, following, uh, distress follow. He imparts in the air a deadly taint. Thousands perish to the pestilence. These visitations are to become more and more frequent and disastrous. Destruction will be upon both man and beast. The earth is so defiled under the inhabitation thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. And then this is the kicker. And then the great deceiver will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils. The class that have provoked the displeasure of heaven will charge all their troubles upon those whose obedience to God's commandments is a perpetual reproof to transgressors. It will be declared that men are offending God by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath, that the sin has brought calamities which will not cease until Sunday observance will be strictly enforced, and those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. So in recap, what Pastor Francis says and what Pastor Howard said, you have secularism. That's driving the morals of America down. We're seeing the decrease of morality. We're seeing an economic decline. We're seeing people suffering. We're seeing people in uncertainty. We're seeing all these values changing, and people are afraid. And so this is going to push people to embrace a, well, they want their houses. They want, they want the economy to be fixed. They want America to be what it was before and like, like it was in prosperity. So this idea of a covenant relationship that God has with America that we need to get back to God is very appealing. And so this is going to draw many people when their economic prosperity is lower, when they see, economic, when, when, when they see uh, natural disasters coming, to go back to have this false revival under the pretense of false worship, that we need to force people to be Christian to appease an angry God. When we as Adventists believe that our God is the God of choice and God of love, because the whole purpose of the Mark of the Beast Sabbath scenario is this, forced worship or choosing to love God by keeping his commandments. Because you need to really love God, because love is by choice, is that correct? Yes? You need to really love God when your homes are taken away. You really keep the Sabbath during that time when your families are against you and when your economic prosperity is turned away. You stand for God because you love God. So the choice is forced worship or do you love God? And so this unity is under false worship to restore divine favor and temporal prosperity, to get everyone back to having the natural economic means met. Amen. Thank you so much. All right, well, we end with this question today that was uh, directed towards me. In light of Joe's sermon on unity in the church and not separating wheat and tares, please explain how to call sin by its right name. This... Uh, it was in quotation marks, calling sin by its right name comes from a, a common um, quotation from Education 57, the greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold. This is not just talking about pastors, it's talking about every person in this room. Men who in their most souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. In this chapter, she speaks of Daniel and his friends and of Elisha and Moses and Paul. And you're waiting for her to get to the best of them all, Jesus. But that's the next two chapters where she gives the ultimate example of somebody who called sin by its right name. And in chapter 9, an illustration of his methods, it gives multiple examples of how Jesus called sin by its right name. 
And it's something different than what we think a lot. And in this, there's two of the disciples that she describes how Jesus called sin by its right name. First was Peter. Peter received a lot of rebuke from Jesus and correction. And uh, she said the history of no one of the disciples better illustrates Christ's method of training than does the history of Peter. And yet when he committed his very, very worst sin of cursing and swearing and denying Jesus, then she says, if the look that Jesus cast upon him had spoken condemnation instead of pity, if in foretelling the sin that he had failed of speaking hope, how dense would have been the darkness that encompassed Peter, how reckless the despair of that tortured soul. So when he made his very, committed his worst sin, worst abomination, if Jesus had poured contempt upon him then, it would have crushed him. He would have committed suicide. But Jesus had pity for him. And then there's a, a section, a lesson in love, and this one is about Judas. Did Judas have sin? Judas had sin. Did Jesus call sin by its right name? But it's written there in Education 91, but there was one of the 12 to whom until, they, until very near the close of his work, Christ spoke no word of direct rebuke or of direct reproof. Jesus, seeing that to agonize, antagonize, was but to harden, refrain from direct conflict. And so when we call sin by its right name, we want to find the Judases and call sin by its right name and, and go for it. That's not what Jesus did. Was, was Judas, uh, did Jesus have tares in his disciples? Yeah, he was a weed. He was one of the tares. But Jesus didn't separate him early. And he, he, when he called sin by its right name, he called sin by its right name and he reproved those who were open to it. See, we do the exact opposite. We, we want to pour our calling sin by its right name and our rebuke and our reproof on those who are not open to it and just pour our contempt upon them. Maybe we should study these chapters and these quotations a little bit more to understand how Jesus called sin by its right name and the way that he related to Peter and to Judas. And if we call sin by its right name that way, then God can shine his character through us and through our ministries. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. May God use each one of you in reflecting his character, his attitude, his spirit, and his truth in the way you speak and the way that we relate to one another. Let's finish with prayer. Heavenly Father, at this GYC, we continue to give ourselves to you. When we look at Peter, we see ourselves. <laughs> when we look at Judas, we see ourselves. And thank you for your patience. We know that there will be many in, in, in the end time that Jesus told us who will betray one another. So help us now to have the long suffering and the care and the love to be able to speak truth the way that Jesus did and to respond to problems in the church the way that you have showed us to and in the world. And when there's the big urge to, to call out all the sins of the Romans, and to see that Jesus wasn't doing what they were all clamoring for, but he had things to say about things happening closer to home. And may we follow in that path, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded in partnership with Audioverse, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.